Take your Bibles and look at this with me, Hebrews 6. We're remembering to talk about Hebrews as an anchor for the soul. And we've gotten this verse, uh, this concept, really right out of here, a couple of places in Hebrews. But look at 619 with me. And let's say that aloud and then let's unpack it a little bit. You ready? This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Now, how does a hope enter the presence? Well, it's hope personified. Hope personified is Jesus Christ. Jesus literally had the veil of the temple torn from top to bottom so that he could give us entrance into the very presence of God. Jesus made a way, and you don't have to wait for Yom Kippur. You don't have to wait for an earthly high priest. Jesus is the anchor. Jesus is the hope. Jesus entered behind the veil so that we could have access to God, our creator. And so let's put a few blanks in there and let's say it again. You ready? This hope we have, as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. Very good. Okay, so Hebrews 6.19. Let me review where we've been because this is certainly one of the most complicated passages in the New Testament, if not all of the Bible. In Hebrews 6.1-8, we have multiple interpretations. And the first thing that the writer's doing here is saying, okay guys, now I just told you get off the milk, get onto the meat. I really need you to go beyond the ABCs of your faith and I need you to graduate from spiritual elementary school. It's time to grow up. It's time to put on our big boy pants and our big girl pants. And then what we get is a, a section of scripture that's confounded a lot of folks. There are a lot of interpretations. A lot of interpretations, but you can boil most of them down into one of four. The first one we talked about last week, and I said it's a preposterous position because it does not accord with the rest of the scripture. It just simply doesn't align. And so something's got to be wrong. If you get to a passage that doesn't align with the rest of scripture, something has happened. Either God is contradictory, which I think I, you know how I feel about that, or you and I are wrong in the interpretation. Can't be both. And so I'm gonna go for the latter option. I'm gonna say, if I interpret this in a way that doesn't align with the rest of scripture, I'm wrong. Now, how can I change my understanding? The preposterous position is that someone is genuinely saved, a true child of God, and then eternally lost. And according to Hebrews 6, if that's true, then there's no possibility of being saved again. Now, equally preposterous is a position that says you're saved, you're lost, you're saved, you're lost, you're saved, you're lost. That's uh, what typically Pentecostalism has espoused. That's what charismatics have espoused in Assemblies of God, Church of God, etc. Again, the big problem I have there is that the rest of Scripture absolutely, fundamentally denies the concept of being saved truly saved and then lost. Uh, I love what Bob Bell said in our pastor's prayer time this morning. He made a great prayer. He said, God, I thank you that I cannot be unborn again. See, when we're born again, we're born to everlasting life, born to eternal life, and you can't be unborn again. And so whether you believe you can be saved and lost or saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost, it just doesn't match the rest of the Bible. Now, it is the easiest surface level reading of this text. Here's the deal though, guys. This text wasn't written in English. So the English and the Greek, I don't think always align in our modern translations. This text wasn't written this year. 
It's quite old. It's coming up on two millennia old. And so when we take this text in its Hebrews context and then in its greater context, I think you'll find that the other positions hold more water than the first. And so what we need to do is unpack those last three positions. Let me show you where I land and why I land. And my opinion of this has changed, by the way. My interpretive position changed on this about... It's been a pretty good while now, over 15 years ago, closer to 20 years ago, as I got into school, as I started studying Greek, as I did my master's in Greek and Hebrew and then, and then got really deep in my PhD work, the more I studied Hebrews and the rest of scripture, the more I came to the position I now hold and I hope will help you as we unpack this. So let's stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Let me read one through eight. Then we'll pick up interpretive positions two, three, and four. Therefore, what does that mean? After you're off the milk, onto the meat, we're gonna leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ and go on to maturity or perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. What does that mean? You understand repentance. Change your mind, change your direction. You understand that works won't save you, but you've gotta have faith. Don't keep talking about the doctrine of baptisms and laying on of hands. You understand that now. Baptism shows on the outside what God's done on the inside. You understand laying on of hands is a bestowal of blessing. It's symbolic in nature. Uh, He says, talking about resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. You understand that those in Christ will be raised to eternal life. Those apart from Christ will be raised to eternal judgment. You understand the basics. You understand the core concepts of the gospel and God's gonna allow us to move past this. We will move past it as God permits now, but let's talk about something pretty deep. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if, or it might be translated, having already fallen away, something like that. But if they fall away, remember what he's saying, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Then there's an illustration. For if the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God, but it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, this is one of those exceedingly difficult sections where we know if our first reading leads us down an errant path, we must be understanding something wrong for you are not a God of contradiction and your word will never come back and be out of alignment with itself. That would make you a liar It's very clear to us that you are the father of all truth. And so I pray that you would give us open hearts and minds as we look at these interpretive positions and then allow us to land. Although we know that there can be strong believers that would hold a few of these positions, help us to come to the table open and ready to understand what you're saying because I believe this text has eternal significance. It's so important for some people here today. I heard hurting mama's hearts in the last service and between services hearing how they need their their children and their grown ones to hear this because they're believing in an action they took as a young person. 
but they're not living with the Lord. So help us to understand now and to apply these truths in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, so we said this position of being lost and saved does not accord with the scripture. It simply does not. And that has not been a position espoused by very many Christians historically. In fact, very few groups until more recent times have gone into the saved, lost, saved, lost, or saved and lost forever. However, I do think there is a possible position. That's the second one. But I don't really think it's what the writer is talking about. What I would call this position is loss of rewards, okay? Loss of rewards, meaning this. Genuinely saved people can lose their heavenly rewards, but not their salvation. Some interpreters see the reader as disobedient Christians who might... They, they might not get all the rewards God was going to give them in heaven. And the Bible does talk a lot about heavenly rewards. It does speak about receiving crowns and things like this to lay back at the feet of the Lord Jesus. But I don't really think that's the emphasis here. But let me tell you why they hold this position. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 with me. I've got it on the screens. It says, if anyone builds on this foundation, meaning the foundation of faith or the foundation of salvation, Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. The day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. The fire of the judgment of God. If anyone's work which he's built on it endures, he'll receive an award. So if uh, reward. If I give a cup of cold water as a disciple of Jesus... And I'm doing that with a sincere heart. I don't want rewards. I don't want the applause of men. I just want to give this to you. The Bible says that that is marked down and God rewards it. But if I do something kind to be seen, to get the applause of men, to get my back padded, that goes away. I don't get any reward for that at all. Nothing. It's just like the Pharisee and the tax collector. When the Pharisee stood and boasted how good he was before God, Jesus said he doesn't go away justified. The tax collector who beat his breast and wouldn't so much as look toward heaven. This humble guy back here, he goes away justified. And so when we see this text, if anyone's work builds endures, he'll receive an award. But if anyone's work is burned, meaning he did it for the wrong reason, he suffers loss. But he himself will be saved, yet is through fire. Meaning there was a purging, but there's this phrase in the book of Job, saved by the skin of one's teeth. You're just gonna squeak in. And there are those that look at this text and say, well, that's what he's talking about. In fact, look at verses seven and eight. The earth drinks in the rain that comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated and the earth receives blessing from God. Okay, so let's imagine. The blessing of God is pouring down on us all like the rain, okay? The blessing of God. But if the one who claims to be blessed by God, their life bears thorns and thistles, then it's rejected. Now watch, this is the word they focus on. It's near to being cursed, near to being cursed. So they're not losing salvation. They're, they're close, but their works are being burned up. There's a big problem with this position though. The problem is that it's not the context of what Hebrews is speaking about. The context is this anchoring context. And we're going to see some of this text repeated over in chapter 10. And it doesn't seem to be talking about reward. It really does seem to be talking about salvation. And whether you have it, whether you can lose it, or whether you can ever regain it if you did have it. So it doesn't 
seem to be talking about rewards. There are a number of fine pastors and Bible scholars that have taken the position. I just don't think it's the strongest position. I think you have to play with the language too much and put your position on one or two words. There is a third position that I used to hold. I held this actually for a pretty good while until I dug more deeply into the Greek and dug more deeply into the book of Hebrews and the context of soteriology, meaning the study of salvation theology. When I dug into that really from Genesis all the way to Revelation, I really reject this position now, though it is plausible. It is plausible and there are some great people that espouse this position. It is called the hypothetical illustration. And what some people that hold this are saying is that genuinely saved people can never truly be apostate. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is saying to them, now look, this is a pure hypothetical. If, if you could be unborn again, you could never be saved again. But we know you can't be unborn again. Okay, I held it for a long time because it's a little easier to understand and many great leaders will hold it, but it doesn't hold up the more I scrutinize the original language and the repeated warning in chapter 10 verses 26 to 31 seemed that this position is not as possible as I thought it once was. There's an urgency in the tone of the writing here that doesn't seem to accord with a pure hypothetical situation. Let me see if I can unpack it in simple terms. In a lot of my dreams as a kid, I could fly. I can remember having many, many, many repeated dreams on the same theme. There was a little brick wall outside of our garage carport area, uh, maybe two and a half, three feet high. And I remember as a young boy jumping up on that a lot and raising my hand and jumping off of it a lot. And sometimes I'd put the bed sheet on, right? Sporting the Superman underoos under my shorts and all that jazz. And I really thought, you know, you could take off from here. You can fly from here. And I would dream at night about raising my hand and literally shooting up into the air. There were some places that I would go and things like that. And so I remember this repeated dream but we know that's purely hypothetical. If, so, so you might ask me today, okay, pastor, if you could fly, where would you go? I could tell you I would dream about going over to my nanny's house, going to the creek that ran in front of her house where we'd catch crawdads and things. I can remember some of those places, but we could engage in that conversation and it would be a cute conversation, but it would have zero meaning on reality. If you could fly, where would you go? Well, it's interesting, but it's sort of a waste of time as big people now. The same is true with the scripture. There are many conditional statements in the Bible. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, then will I hear from it. Lots of conditioned blessings and promises, but not a lot of hypotheticals. Because God's not wasting our time. God's not trying to trick us. And so here's the deal. I will fly one day. I absolutely will fly. If Jesus comes back before I die, I'm gonna fly away and this body gets transformed. 
If you have buried me and stuck me in the ground somewhere, no matter what happens to me and the rapture takes place, then the immaterial me that's already with the Lord will be meeting up with the material me and I will fly away and see the Lord in the air one day. I'm going to get to fly. And that's not a hypothetical, but that's very different than engaging in a hypothetical conversation. Well, if you could really raise your hand Superman style and you could really take off, where would you go? I just don't think God is trying to waste our time. And it is possible and maybe even plausible to look at it and say, okay, what he's trying to say is, if you really fall away, you can't, never come, you can't ever come back. But you couldn't really ever fall away. It just doesn't seem to accord with the heart of God and the writing of salvation in other places. But it does lead us, it bumps us toward the final, and I believe by far most likely position. And I've included it in the very title of this message, and I'm gonna call it this, professors but not possessors. Some appear to be genuinely saved, but their falling away proves that they're actually lost and hardened against Christ. I'm going to say this is the most probable position, and let me try to tell you why. There is an assumption in positions one, two, and three that the language of verses four and five absolutely, definitively mean salvation. There's just one problem with that. That language does not always absolutely and definitively mean salvation. In fact, the more I learned the original language, because remember, the Bible's not written in English now, and just like, think about the word love, love. I could say, I love tacos and I love Miss Cindy. I promise you I'm using love in two different ways. I promise you it's not the same emotion. Greek has four words for love, three of which are highlighted in the Bible. But Greek has four different words for love. And yet if we don't know that, we don't know the nuance behind it. It's very important when you come to a text like Jesus and Peter. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. They were using two different words. People have often said, why did Jesus ask him three times? Well, he denied him three times. That's another sermon for another day. But they're two different words for love uh, that, that are going back and forth. And in this text, in its original, I want you to look at something with me. It's impossible for those who are once enlightened, that doesn't mean saved, who've tasted the heavenly gift. That doesn't mean saved, it means tasted. It didn't say processed or taken in, it's tasted. You can taste something and spit it out. You know that, right? And become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Well, there it is, surely. Surely if you're a partaker of the Holy Spirit, it means you must be saved. Oh, really? Hmm. So let's try something. I told you last week about my golf game. I could profess to you right now that I can normally shoot about five over par. I would totally be lying, and so I'm not gonna make that profession. But all it would take for you to prove that I was lying is to take me out to play a round of golf. I could be five over within the first probably two holes, but I'm not gonna be a five over golfer. Maybe if we go to putt-putt and I'm having a good day, but not on the regular, so I can profess all day long, but it is in the testing that the possession of the skill comes to be or not. It is in the testing. And so here's the deal. Some interpreters, including yours truly, feel that some of the readers of Hebrews, meaning Jewish Christians or Jewish professing Christians, I believe some of them were not yet true Christians. They had tasted 
They had even shared in experiences of the Holy Spirit. That's called common grace. The Bible is replete with illustrations of people that aren't actually God-fearers, aren't actually Christians, that have experiences with the Holy Spirit. They can even taste the goodness of God's word. Again, common to Christian and non-Christian. But what does it mean to be partakers of the Holy Spirit if it doesn't mean I'm saved? Well, think about this. The Spirit of God guided the Israelites in the wilderness. Experiencing the Holy Spirit does not always lead to saving faith. There were times in the Old Testament where the Spirit came upon a person and left them, but they were not a genuine God-fearer or follower. And so what happens is in Acts 2.13, what we find when the Spirit falls at Pentecost, there were people that experienced the Spirit's power. They beheld it. You could argue they partook and they tasted, but they still mocked and walked away. Just because they've seen the Spirit or experienced the Spirit doesn't mean they're possessed by the Spirit. And someone can share with believers in the Spirit by witnessing his work without knowing Christ. I love what C.I. Schofield wrote. You know Schofield, the study Bible. He says this, Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 presents the case of Jewish professed believers who halt short of faith in Christ after advancing to the very threshold of salvation, even going along with the Holy Spirit in his work of enlightenment and conviction. But it is not said that they had saving faith. This supposed person is like the spies at Kadesh Barnea, that's out of Deuteronomy 1, who saw the promised land had the very fruit in their hands, and yet they turned back. What a great illustration. And we know that the promised land and the Exodus journey is a parallel of salvation. We know that. The Bible gives multiple examples of the parallel of us going to our own promised land. And here's the deal. Out of the 12 spies, 10 of them were right at the edge. Let's go in. Let's take it. God has said we could have it. And they said, oh, no, no, we can't. Joshua and Caleb said, let's go, and Joshua and Caleb would be rewarded. But less than two weeks ago, we were standing on the top of Mount Nebo. Do you know who was buried on Mount Nebo? Do you know who gazed over and saw the promised land as we did as a group of tourists the other week? You know who died there? His eyes were still bright. He was 120 years old, and yet it was though he was still a young man. You know who died there? Moses. Moses died there because he got right to the edge, but in disobeying God. And I'm not saying he was lost, by the way. That's a, I'm, I'm mixing analogies here, but what I am saying is that he didn't enter that promised land. He would have faith in God and be called out later in Hebrews, but he didn't enter that promised land. He tasted it. He saw that it was good. He was on the precipice. And in the context of greater Hebrews and the rest of the Bible, what you see when you unpack this language is, this makes a lot of sense. He's using the strongest possible language to say, you're right on the edge. You're right on the edge. You believe, but you won't receive. Think about that very famous parable that Jesus proclaimed multiple times. And do you know it's one of the only parables in the Bible Jesus took the time to explain? He almost never explained his parables. He just proclaimed them. He actually said, this is so important for you to get. I'm going to explain it to you. He talked about four soils. You remember? And in the parable of the four soils, he said, there is a seed that is planted by the sower. The seed is not $1,000. It's not good works. It's the word of God. 
And for some, the seed falls along rocky places and it springs up quickly. You've seen plants grow up out of the rock. Springs up quickly, but there's no root. The sun scorches it, it dies. Looked okay at first, but not the real deal. There's some that gets caught away by the birds. Things come along and snatch those seeds away so it never has time to do its work. Some actually get planted. But cares of this world and other things in life come along. Now, you know some people like this, and it becomes briars and thorns, and it chokes out what looked to be a good plant. But then Jesus says there are some, some of the seeds fall into good soil. Soil that has been turned over and cultivated and the rocks removed, good soil. And that seed, the one in four, will produce fruit. Good fruit, fruit that remains. And there's an alignment there in that parable with John 15. But not everybody who proclaims to have fruit produces fruit. Not every professor is a possessor. In fact, listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He said, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, it's very interesting to me that one of the most misquoted verses in all of the Bible, it's used by more lost people than just about any other verse in the Bible. People that look at Christians and say, oh, you bunch of hypocrites and you're doing this and you're doing that. And they will tell us this, judge not lest you be judged. And that what they're saying to us is you can't say what I'm doing is wrong. Oh, really? That's the first phrase of Matthew 7. Read Matthew 7. By their fruits, you will know them. I'm not gonna be silly enough to call an apple tree an orange tree or a pear tree a peach tree. I can know a a tree by its fruit. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, no, 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 no. He says, look, many will say, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done wonders in your name, but I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity or you who practice lawlessness. Depart from me. Just because you make a profession does not mean you have the possession of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've tasted, maybe you've been at the precipice, but maybe you're not in yet. You can be a, I've I've written it like this. You can be a professor of Christ without being a possessor of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing in this language here that indicates a truly saved person. At one time I thought it did, but actually the language doesn't indicate that. It means someone who's eerily close. So you can be a professor without a possessor, but you cannot be a possessor of the Holy Spirit without being a professor of Christ. He's gotta come out. Jesus has got to ooze out if you really know him and love him. He can't help it. You can't keep it to yourself. You cannot be around me very long without hearing me talk about a few things. I'm gonna talk about my beautiful wife. I'm gonna probably talk about the grandgirls now, the grandbabies. I'm gonna talk about hunting and or fishing. There are a few subjects that I'm gonna talk about. If we hang out long enough, we're gonna talk about motorcycles. There are gonna be some passions that I'm gonna talk about because it drives me. 
And so we're gonna talk about those things. Well, this is true with Christ. It's like a friend of mine in high school. I'll not say his name because we have some folks that watch and I wouldn't want to embarrass him. But in high school, we were out riding a four-wheeler and it was my four-wheelers. He was behind me. We went on to a tobacco field and they had cut it away from the woods. A lot of these fields in our area were not huge fields, 50-acre, 70-acre, 100-acre fields. But around the wood edge, they'd cut it away for the tractors to run. Great fields to run four-wheelers and we stay out of the crop and just run the edges. So we're doing some rounds and my buddy says, hey man, let me drive this thing. I said, you ain't never had a four-wheeler. Do you know how, I mean, it's one down, it's like four up, you know what you're doing? Yeah, I know what I'm doing. (sighs) Dumb, dumb, dumb. I said, okay. So he jumps on and I said, now be careful. It was kind of muddy, there was some ruts. Be careful, man. And so he takes off. The round we had been doing should have taken him a few minutes. But time keeps on ticking and my buddy's not back. So I'm like, oh great. This was long before the days of cell phones. So I start huffing it around the edge of this field and I get all the way to the far end and there is my buddy. He's grabbing the back of my four-wheeler, the the bar on the back and he's trying to pull it out of the woods and the front of it's got a nice big V-dent where he went in but hit a tree. And I said, what is wrong with you, man? You told me you knew how to work it. On his first round, he slid out the back, he overcorrected and went square into a tree. Whose fault was that? That was really mine. Because he professed a skill that his brain did not have and his hands could not do. He says he could handle it. The truth is in the testing, he could not handle it. And I think what the writer is saying here is that the truly regenerate will never fall away, but the genuineness of your new birth is proved by the persistence in faith. So continuance is the test of reality. I've said it this way to all four of my kids. Time, time is the surest indicator of whether or not you're truly saved. Philip Hacking in his book, Opening Up Hebrews said, standing still is a sure recipe for falling back. Now the Bible does say here, verse four, it is impossible to renew them to repentance. What does that mean? Well, if you're right on the precipice, but you continue to reject Christ with full knowledge and conscience experience, the Bible says you get to a point where you do lose a hope of salvation. In other words, you've got all the knowledge you need to be saved and you continue to reject the Lord. F.F. Bruce, the great New Testament theologian said, God has pledged himself to pardon all who truly repent, but scripture and experience alike suggest that it is possible for human beings to arrive at a state of heart and life where they can no longer repent. You know, that's what happened to Pharaoh, right? The Bible goes back and forth in the Pharaoh narrative that he hardened his heart, that God hardened his heart, that he hardened his heart and that God hardened his heart. You know what that means, folks? There is a time for us where if you are confronted with the truth over and over and over, he was confronted with the truth of God's majesty and power over and over, and you continue to say no, no, no. There could be a time when the heart is so hard you can no longer say yes. You say, well, who knows that? Only God. I would never claim to know that. And as as far as I'm concerned, if someone's heart is still breathing and there's still breath in their lungs, there's still a chance. So keep sharing Jesus with them. 
But I am telling you, the writer of Hebrews is assuming that continuance and commitment to Christ is demonstrating the reality of Christianity. You see, these readers had professed some faith in Christ, but turning away from their initial decision and deserting Christ would show that they were never truly part of the family. They need to understand the seriousness of what they're considering. As noted in chapter three, verses 12 and following, we had looked at that. Those who harden their hearts against God over and over and over may reach a point of hardening where they are no longer capable of saying yes. The conscience is so seared that they can no longer turn to God. Let me ask you a question. Do you know anyone that seems to be hardened to Christ and the gospel? Now I wanna be careful here. I'm not the judge, nor are you, of whether they're too far gone. But it is important to remember that it is a very dangerous thing to know the truth and to continue to say no. It's a very dangerous thing to see the power of God, to taste these things, and then to spit them back out in God's face. It's a very dangerous thing. What have we learned? True followers of Christ must grow beyond the ABCs of faith and graduate from spiritual elementary school. The interpretations that I've listed for you by way of least likely to most are being saved than lost. Whether that's one time or a bunch of times, the Bible just simply doesn't give the position credence. Loss of rewards, it's possible, but I think the text is more serious. Hypothetical, yes, that's plausible, but I think again, this is more serious than that. So being professors, not possessors, this is, I believe, the most probable position. I just want to close with the burden of my heart. After about 24 years of this full time, I've seen an awful lot of folks that thought they were saved. But later they realized that they were lost as a goose in a snowstorm. Men that came to understand that they were more lost than a golf ball in high weeds. People that came to discover that they were more lost than the Dallas Cowboys in an NFL playoff game. <laughs> Sorry about that. Figured I couldn't pick on the Vols after last night. It's too, too fresh, too fresh. I don't want to cause intentional doubt in your heart about your salvation. But I want to say to you, if you are not certain today, if you have not nailed it down, that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. If you've seen it, if you've tasted it, if you've dabbled in it, but you are not all in. If you don't know that you know that the Spirit of the living God lives in you, that you are born again, that you have the gift of eternal life, which cannot be undone because you cannot be unborn. If you are not certain, I am begging you to nail it down today because there is coming a day when we will stand before our maker and your daddy won't answer for you and your mama or your grandmama won't answer for you. But if he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? You have only one reply because I have placed my hands in the hands that bled and died for me. I believe Jesus paid the price on the cross. Jesus was crucified and buried. Jesus is at your right hand mediating on my behalf. Jesus wants me to come home to be with you and it is all because of what he has done and nothing about what I have done but I have kept the faith. I have finished the race and I'm standing before you as my creator because I'm ready to spend my eternity with you all. 
oh God. And if you can't speak those kinds of things with certainty today, why would you leave before nailing it down? You can talk about it all you want, but don't you dare walk out of these doors being a professor without first being a possessor. Stand with me as we go to the Lord. Guys, look, this is not rocket science or jet propulsion engineering. This is pretty straightforward. Either you know Jesus personally and he lives within by the spirit and you are a child of God or not. One way or the other, there's no middle of the road here. There's no gray matter. You're in the family or you're not. There's no such thing as part-time adoption or half-time child. You're either a son or daughter or you're not. And you don't bounce back and forth between being a child of God and the child of the devil. Oh, you may live devilish at times, but you're in or you're not. I want you to know one of the things we make sure we do in each of these Life at Grace classes is we counsel individually with folks. And it seems every time we have a class, we'll have people that come from another church that have been on a roll, maybe that were baptized, but they come to realize they were not truly saved. And they get saved. So I'm praying for the people in that room right now. But I'm praying for you right now. If you need to nail this down, I want you to come and give it to the Lord. Now you can come and pray for yourself or others. I know we spent some time doing that last week, but you can come, Miss Cindy and I will be over here. There'll be pastors available, counselors available, men and women that'll take you to the word of God to show you the truth of God, to say, nail it down and know for certain today. Don't leave in doubt. Don't leave being wishy-washy on this matter. If you've been right to the precipice, but you've said no, there could come a time when the heart gets hard. Keep it soft today. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.